Amen. Yes. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Exodus, the second book in the Bible. I would invite you to use a Bible that you might find in front of you if you didn't bring your own. Book of Exodus, reminder of what we're doing here on Wednesday nights. We're going through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, looking at the main themes of Scripture, the milestones of Scripture, the main players of Scripture, the mountain peaks of Scripture. We're hoping to get a bird's eye view and see how all of God's word fits together. And the peak that we're stopping at tonight, I've called a nation in bondage. Let's pray. Father, as we continue to explore your awesome word. Father, I pray that you would explore us. That you would explore our hearts, our lives. Father, I pray that you would use your word to encourage us and build us up. Warn us, rebuke us if need be. Lord, that by your word and by your spirit, we would become powerful servants in your kingdom. Effective witnesses for you. Lord, speak to us tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You notice the doors here in the side of the sanctuary, and you notice the signs above the doors. What do those doors, or those signs say? Exit. That's what the word exodus means. Exit. Departure. Getting out of Dodge. Leaving. Getting out. The book of Exodus records probably the most significant event in the history of the nation of Israel, their exodus out of Egypt into the promised land. And it's a great, great story. The Jews still remember it every year right around Passover. It's an adventurous story. Maybe you saw the movie with Charlton Heston. (laughs) Great, miraculous, wonderful Bible adventure. Now, before we begin to read the story tonight, I want to remind you of two very important promises that God made to Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel. The first promise he gave was that that family would become a great nation. You remember that promise? Your descendants will become as numerous as the sand on the seashore. So it's going to become a great nation. And then the second promise that God made was that that great nation would have their own land. The promised land, the land that we know of as Israel. That first promise gets fulfilled in the opening verses of Exodus. Read it with me. It says, Now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt, 
Each man in his household came with Jacob. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, all those 12 tribes. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died, all his brothers and all that generation, but the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. So the family of Israel has been in the land of Egypt for just about 400 years. When they first arrived in Egypt, there were 70 members of the family. Exodus chapter 12 tells us at this time that they've increased to 600,000 men. So if you include women and children, you're close to a nation of 2 million people. So in 400 years from 70 to 2 million people, that's dramatic multiplication, don't you think? That's a population explosion. And the text bears that out. In verse 7, seven different Hebrew words are used to describe the multiplication. It says they were fruitful, they increased abundantly, multiplied, grew exceedingly, mighty, the land was filled with them. Literally, there was a swarm of Hebrews in the land of Israel. Now, some would question this population explosion, how it could go from 70 to 2 million in 400 years. The answer is it was supernatural. During those 400 years, God essentially created the nation of Israel. He caused their supernatural Growth For 400 years, while they were in Egypt, if you remember, they were given the land of Goshen, which was a very fertile part of Egypt. And the Egyptians didn't want anything to do with the Hebrews, so there wouldn't be any temptation for intermarriage or anything like that. But in that very fertile area, they populated greatly. Maybe there was something in the water there. I don't know. Goshen has been called the mother's womb of a nation. Goshen became an incubator for God's nation. And during those 400 years, they became this mighty, mighty people. That first promise was fulfilled. So now we go to the second promise. They would become a mighty nation, but the promise of God is that they would come into their own land. They wouldn't be in the land of Egypt. They would go into their own land. And so now in this book, you begin to see God move to get his people to move to the promised land. And you might be a little surprised to find out what God did to get them to move. God actually allowed an evil, satanic, dictator, Pharaoh to come into power in Egypt. What it says in verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt 
who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happened in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us. And so, go up out of the land. So a new pharaoh rises to power. This guy does not know Joseph. He does not remember history. He does not remember Joseph. He didn't remember how awesome Joseph was in their history. Joseph was the one who saved the world from the famine, you remember? Including the Egyptians. This guy's forgotten all about that. He could care less about Joseph. He could care less about the God of Joseph. He could care less about the people of Joseph. And he's paranoid. He's insecure. He looks around his land and he sees all these Hebrews swarming around. And he says, they're more than us. They're mightier than us. They might take over. They might join forces with an invading enemy and take us out. We need to weaken them. I want you to notice very carefully what he says there at the end of verse 10. This Pharaoh says that they also join our enemies and fight against us. And so do what? Go up out of the land. Now, this guy didn't want the Hebrews to leave the land. He wants to use them. So he doesn't want them to leave. He just wants to weaken them. To diminish them. To use them. And he's got bad things planned for the Hebrews. Now there's an important lesson here. And that is that you should never ever put your trust in man. Don't ever put your trust in man. Things change in the kingdom of man. Power shifts, doesn't it? 400 years prior, there were pharaohs that were sympathetic to Joseph and the Hebrews and let them do what they wanted. This pharaoh comes on the scene and he's not sympathetic to the Hebrews. There's a change in leadership. Things change. Brother, sister, Christ, in Christ, don't ever trust in man. You might have a great boss today. Somebody who is fair with you, but next week your company could be bought out and you get a new boss. I pity the person who puts trust and faith in political leaders. Psalm 146 says, do not put your trust in princes, nor in a son of man in whom there is no help. Happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps truth forever. Keep your trust in God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. 
while man changes all the time. So now we have this new leader in Egypt, and I personally believe that he was demonically controlled. I believe that he was an instrument of Satan, and the text will bear that out. He hates Joseph. He hates the people of God. He hates God. He wants to thwart the plans of God. And you'll read in a few verses where he even tries to wipe out the seed of the people of God. But God will use this guy. God allows him to rise up into power. I feel sorry for this guy. It says that he tries to deal shrewdly. This guy thinks he's real smart. But you're going to see that everything this guy tries backfires. God outsmarts him. And God uses him for the good of his people. So what does this guy do? Look at verse 11. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. I love that. And they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. So Pharaoh decides that he wants to build two storage cities, Pithom and Ramses. Big deal building projects. And he decides that he's going to make all those Hebrews in his land build it. He enslaves them. Overnight, they become slaves. He sets cruel taskmasters over them. Now, you read this and you sort of gloss over and you think, okay, so they became slaves. Well, was it really that? It was really bad. Life became a living hell for the Israelites, a nightmare. In verse 7, seven words are used to describe the multiplication. Here in verses 13 and 14, seven words are used to describe their labor, their pain, their suffering. Look at it. Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor, made their lives bitter, hard bondage, mortar, brick, all manner of service, all their service made them serve with rigor. Understand. God's people began to suffer greatly. Egypt became for Israel a wasteland of backbreaking torment, a house of bondage. An ancient text has been found that 
somebody wrote about the way the Egyptians treated their slaves. An Egyptian master traveling down the Nile goes to inspect his slaves, and this writer tells about what he saw. He writes, Now the scribe lands on the shore. He surveys the harvest. Attendants are behind him with staffs, Nubians with clubs. One says, Give grain. There is none. He's beaten savagely. He's bound, thrown in the well, submerged head down. His wife is bound in his presence. His children are in fetters. The children of Israel were beaten. They were subjected to the most cruelest of behavior, barbaric brutality. And God allowed that. God allowed the rise of Pharaoh. And God allowed the rise of that suffering. But I want you to understand something, my brother and sister in Christ. Although it was incredibly painful what they were going through, good things were happening. God was doing good things behind the scene. This Pharaoh thought he was breaking the people down. He wasn't. They were just getting stronger. They're multiplying even more. And understand, God was doing a work in the hearts of his people. Yes, in Egypt, they had become a great nation. But because of the suffering, because of what that Pharaoh subjected them to, that great nation got solidified as a tight-knit community. See, when you go through suffering, you get tight. So now you have a nation that's getting very tight. And also, because of those turns of events, you also now have a nation that would like to exit Egypt. They've been given all the motivation they need to, as soon as they can, get out of Egypt. Whereas before, they're sort of hanging out in Egypt. I want you to think about this. If this guy doesn't rise to power, if this doesn't happen, then they stay in Egypt and everything's sort of easy peasy. And it's very likely that they may have never left Egypt. They just stayed in Egypt. They may have been absorbed into the Egyptian culture. Start joining in with all the idols. Worship of the Egyptians. No. Egypt had to become a house of bondage. So that they would long for the promised land. So as hard as that was. God was doing good things in the heart of his people, preparing them. Now, I want you to remember that the next time you suffer. Christian, listen. The next time you suffer. Maybe some of you here tonight are suffering. And you're right in the midst of it, and it hurts, and it's painful. But you need to understand, God is always doing something good. 
through that suffering, your faith may become more solidified. You may become more solidified with the community of God's people in the church. God may get your attention. And I'll tell you, one of the most important, I think, results of suffering in our life as Christians is that it reminds us that this isn't the real life. We're to live for the next life. Again, think about it. If you lived on this planet and it was just easy peasy, nothing bugs you, nothing hurts. You might just live in this life. You might not even consider God. But I'll tell you what, when a, when a trial comes your way, when suffering comes your way, then you understand how much of a wreck this life really is. And you are reminded of the better life coming. And you're reminded to live for that life. And live that others might know of that life. So as hard as this was, God was doing an important work in the hearts of his people. So the hard labor doesn't stop the multiplication. So now Pharaoh does something else. And this is where we see the true satanic nature of Pharaoh. Look at verse 15. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives of whom the name of one was Shiphrah and the name of the other Puah. And he said, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on their birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. Infant side. Think of the horror of that. This man commands the Hebrew midwives to kill babies. To kill infants. Why the male babies and not the female babies? Because they can kill the male babies... And that will dramatically stop the multiplication. And it will also dramatically weaken their military strength. Because baby boys tend to grow up to become fierce warriors. So Pharaoh says, kill the babies. Horrific. A horrific command. And you think, how could anyone, how could anyone stand for such a thing. How could anyone let that happen? Since 1973, since the verdict of Roe versus Wade, 58 million babies have been aborted. 58 million little over 1.2 million babies a year. Over the last several years, it's gone down a little bit, around 760,000 abortions every year in America. That's 2,100 babies every single day. 
These things happen in the Bible only, these horrific things. Nope, they're happening today, infant side. And what Pharaoh did is even worse than just that. For you see, he's going after Jewish male babies. So that is the spirit of Satan trying to kill the seed of the woman, the Messiah, through the nation of Israel, by whom the world can be saved from sin. So Pharaoh now joins the ranks of guys like Haman in the book of Esther who tried to annihilate the Jewish race, guys like Hitler who tried to exterminate the Jewish race, guys like Herod who tried to kill babies in Bethlehem. This guy was bad news. Now he tells these two women, Shifra and Pua, that's an unfortunate name, isn't it? But it's actually got a beautiful meaning. Shifra means beautiful, and did you know Pua means splendid? Splendid. He tells these two midwives. Now, there were a lot more midwives than two. It's thought that they were the head nurses. He tells them, when you attend a birth and it's a male, kill it. Well, these two women will live up to their name. They will be beautiful and splendid. Because look what it says in verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, I love this, Because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, for they're lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. I love that. Our women give birth quickly. They have babies so quick we don't even get there. Two beautiful, beautiful women. Illustrating for us a timeless principle in the scripture that the law of God always eclipses the law of man. Always. If the government tells you to do something that is directly against what God's law says, you are to go with God. And suffer the repercussions patiently and respectfully. These wives did the right thing. And notice how God blesses them. Verse 20. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives. I love this. And the people multiplied and grew very mighty. They're just more fruitful. And so it was because the midwives feared God that he provided households for them. I love that. The midwives among the Hebrews were the women who weren't able to bear children. Of their own, and they didn't have husbands, they didn't have families, and so they would work as midwives. These midwives, because they obeyed God, got husbands, got families, and started having children. And so now even the midwives are having babies. So awesome. God is so good. My brother, my sister in Christ, 
Let these two women be an example to you. We are to be champions of life. Amen? We should do everything that we possibly can to protect the lives of babies. Sister, if you might be here tonight and you might be in a situation where you're pregnant and you're thinking through whether or not to have that child, keep that child. Give birth. Put up for adoption if you need to. Listen, choose life. Watch God bless. Now, I also saw a statistic recently that said that 35% of women have at least one abortion before the age of 45. So that statistic alone tells me that maybe there are some folks here who have been through that. And you hurt because of it. And the whole topic of abortion is extra sensitive to you. Listen, it's wrong. But please understand that the blood of Christ washes away all sin. The blood of Christ washes away all sin. If you come to him and ask for forgiveness. And he can heal you. Turn you into a champion of life. So, that doesn't work. What does Pharaoh do in response? Verse 22. So, Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. So, Pharaoh says, I'm not using the Hebrew midwives anymore. Now, he tells his soldiers, his taskmasters, you will now be patrolling the Hebrew camps. The Hebrew tent cities. If you get word of a birth, if you hear a baby crying, investigate. If it's a male baby, you will throw that baby into the Nile River. And there is no doubt that hundreds of Israelite babies were thrown into the Nile River at that time. Which, by the way, would be avenged. Do you realize that God often judges people with the same sin that they've committed against others? Later on, in the tenth plague, the Egyptians will all lose what? Their firstborn sons. So there will be great judgment for them. But now we have a nation in bondage, in terror, babies being killed. Here's a nation in Egypt that is now crying and groaning for a deliverer. And they want the exit. They want out. And they're motivated. And it's then that God does provide a deliverer. You know who? One of those little guys. 
little baby is born. Little baby Moses. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. It says, And a man of the house of Levi went and took as a wife a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. So a husband and wife from the tribe of Levi. Here's a man and woman. They get married during this time of infanticide. And they have a baby boy. And this is little baby Moses. And I always chuckle. It says, when she saw that he was a beautiful child, Moses wrote that. Can you just see Moses saying, man, I was a good looking baby. But we know there was something very, very special about Moses. The hand of God was upon that deliverer. Very, very special. Now, baby boys are loud. Anybody ever had one? They cry. They carry on. They make a fuss. So Moses' parents did the very best they could to hide, to keep this baby boy secret for three months. In a time where, no doubt, babies were being thrown in the Nile River. Now understand, put yourself in that position, parent. You're trying to desperately keep your your three-month-old infant quiet. So it's here that the mother of Moses takes one of the biggest steps of faith... That you find in all of scripture. Look at verse 3. When she could no longer hide him. She took an ark of bulrushes. For him. Daubed it with asphalt and pitch. Put the child in it. And laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off. To know what would be done to him. Mom could you do that? She puts together this little boat, this basket. And by the way, the language here is the same language that's used to speak of the ark that Noah built. She makes this little mini ark. She puts her three-month-old baby in it. Now, is she being reckless? Nope. There's no doubt in my mind that She's been praying about it, that she was directed by the Lord to do it. But still, putting your baby in a boat in the Nile River. What an act of faith. Man, I know some moms who have a hard time putting their babies in the church nursery. (laughs) On Sunday morning for one hour. Here's a mom who puts her baby in a basket. Here's a mom with nothing else left to do but to release her baby into the hands of the Lord. Incredible picture. As parents, many of us 
our parents here. And some, some of us, we have youth right next door. Some of us have kids over there in the Calvary Kids Club ministry. And, and as parents, we want to keep our kids secure, don't we? We want to hold on to them. We want to protect them, keep them close. The hardest thing for us to do as parents is to release them into the hands of the Lord. Mom, dad, listen. You need to do that with your kids. You need to release them into the hands of the Lord. Sure, when they're young and they're with you, and I mean, you take care of them, you take ownership, but as they get older, you got to release them. You got to let them go. Hardest thing in the world for a mom or dad to do, but do it. Let them go. Pray for them. Be there for them. But let them go. You know, our kids don't really belong to us. Who do our kids really belong to? They're God's kids. Do you realize that kids, for us, belong to God, and we as parents are stewards of his kids? That means we get them for a small amount of time. And we do everything we can to nurture them. But there has to come that time where you release them. Mom, dad, take that pressure that you feel for your kids and give that pressure to the Lord. Trust him with your babies. They belong to him. What an incredible example for this mom. And notice how this step of faith is honored. I love it. She puts him in this basket. His sister sort of stands guard. And look at verse 5. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. And her maidens walked along the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child. And behold, the baby wept. I love that. Just on cue. Can you see the lid come off? And then Moses. Right on cue. And at that very moment, enters the heart of Pharaoh's daughter. She has compassion upon him. It says, so she had compassion on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister, what a smart sister, said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women? that she may nurse the child for you. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the maiden went and called whom? The child's mom. (laughs) Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. Moms, do you wish you could be paid for raising kids? Here's a mom who takes this incredible step of faith. I'm releasing my baby into the hands of the Lord. She ends up being able to nurse her child without worrying about the noise. 
and she gets paid for it. Let me just say this. Steps of faith can be the hardest steps to take. But the most amazing things happen through steps of faith. God can do things like, oh, you've never even dreamed. Okay, look at verse 10. Pay attention to this verse. This one verse summarizes the first 40 years of the life of Moses. And the child grew. And she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she called his name Moses, saying, because I drew him out of the water. So Moses grew to an age, and eventually he became the legally adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. Understand this. Moses, as a Hebrew, grew up in the palace of Egypt. He grew up as royalty. The book of Acts chapter 7 tells us that Moses was trained in all of the wisdom of the Egyptians. Moses received the finest education. He had all the money he could possibly want. All the connections he could possibly want. All the power he could possibly want. Something that he was even in line to become Pharaoh one day. Book of Acts chapter 7 says that Moses grew mighty in deeds and words. Tradition also says that Moses was an extremely good looking man. Josephus said that those who met him as he was carried along the streets forgot their business and stood still to gaze at him. Now I want you to picture this scene. Here's a man who's got it all. He's got the connections. He's got the power. He's got the money. He's got the looks. He's got everything. The whole world is at his beckoning. That's how he grew up for 40 years. But we also know that when he turned 40, something happened. Moses made a very incredible decision with his life. With all of this before him, with all of this opportunity... Hebrews chapter 11 says, By faith, Moses, when he became of age, check this out, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. At the age of 40, Moses became aware of his heritage. He became aware of the Hebrews, that he was a Hebrew. He saw the suffering of his brethren, and he made a choice. He decided, I'm going to go with God's people. I'm going to choose to suffer 
affliction with the people of God rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin and all the riches and the treasures in Egypt. Now think of what Moses had access to. He gave it all away. Now why did he do that? Moses was a smart guy. Moses did a little comparison. See, he compared all that this world can offer and he thought about all that God would offer. Look at the last line there. Rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the approach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to what? The reward. There's a reward that God gives that trumps completely eclipses anything that this world has to offer. It might involve suffering here, but the reward is great. And I want to remind you of that tonight, my brother and sister in Christ. I want you to remember, there is great reward, great reward in serving God and doing what God has for you and being willing to suffer with his people. greater than anything that you might find in this world. You might be here tonight dreaming. You find yourself dreaming of what it would be like to be independently wealthy. Oh man, to have these different houses everywhere and things that this world can offer. Now I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with stuff like that unless that becomes your God. And please understand that it pales in comparison to the reward God has for you if you're faithful to him. Remember that. Moses chose. So at the age of 40, Moses decides he is going to be with his people and he is going to be their deliverer. There's only one problem. He's still a prideful man. He's a self-confident man. And unfortunately, he tries to take matters into his own hands. Look at verse 11. Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown, that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that way. Now, when you look this way and that way, are you up to any good? If you ever find yourself going, stop what you're doing immediately. He's looking this way. He's looking that way. And when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Moses, a murderer. Some people try to justify this as a righteous kill. No, it wasn't. Moses took matters into his own hands. He killed an Egyptian. And he thought he got away with it. But verse 13 says, When he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. Lots of fighting in those days. And he said to the one who did the wrong, why are you striking your companion? Then he said, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, surely this thing 
is known. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian. Let me show you where Midian is. Egypt's up there, top left. Midian's way down there, bottom right. Moses got out of Dodge. (laughs) He fled all the way here to Midian. Now understand this about Moses. He spends the first 40 years of his life in the palace in Egypt. This is where he'll spend the next 40 years of his life. In the wilderness. 40 years. In the wilderness. Now those are not wasted years. God does some amazing things with Moses by way of preparation. I want you to notice, he will be hanging out in this area and in this area. And right down there is a little mountain called Mount Sinai. This is a wilderness area that he will become extremely familiar with. And he will practical, in practical ways, learn how to navigate the wilderness. Now, the next 40 years of his life, he'll be hanging out in that same wilderness, won't he? With two million people. So during those 40 years. Moses is learning some real practical. Lessons. He's being prepared. Also during those 40 years. He becomes a husband and a dad. Verse 15. Says so he dwelt in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian. Had seven daughters. And they came and drew water, and they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away, attacking these helpless women. But Moses stood up, helped them, watered their flock. When they came to Reuel, their father, also known as Jethro, he said, How is it that you have come so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds, and he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. So he said to his daughters, and where is he? Why is it that you've left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. Let's thank the man. Then Moses was content to live with the man, and he gave Zipporah, his daughter, to Moses. And she bore him a son. He called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. So for 40 years, he's in the wilderness, and he's a dad, and he's a husband. And please understand, the best training in life for leadership is family. What kind of a dad? What kind of a husband? And we also know that Moses will become a shepherd during those 40 years. So for 40 years, he's serving as a shepherd in the wilderness area. Again, great training for shepherding people. But perhaps the most important thing that happens to Moses during these 40 years is that he becomes an absolutely broken man. It is in the wilderness years... That Moses will lose all of his pride. 
all of his self-confidence and become a man who is utterly dependent upon God. It's during those wilderness years that he becomes deeply connected to the Lord. Moses is a man who will be used greatly by God. Listen carefully. All people who are used greatly by God are first greatly broken by God. Utterly broken. You have to be completely emptied out. And that's what happened to Moses during those 40 years. As people like to say, he got his BSD degree. You ever heard that? The backside of the desert degree which is the greatest degree you can get in the economy of God by the end of those 40 years now he's ready to be used these are pictures of Moses no I'm just kidding that's Charlton Heston (laughs) Moses at the age of 40 you picture him proud Egyptian man, strong man, royal man. God can't use a man like that. Not till he becomes 80. (laughs) Humbled, broken. That's when God can really use a person. And so when Moses turns 80, now he's ready to go. Meanwhile, back in Egypt, verse 23, it says, Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant. Verse 25, and God looked upon the children of Israel and God acknowledged them. The groaning is there. The crying out for a deliverer is there. Now a deliverer is ready. And we'll pick up with that story as we continue next week. There are some really good lessons to learn from this text. Number one, suffering. God can use suffering for our good. Please understand that. When you find yourself going through a time of suffering, don't run from God, run to God. It's great to be able to read the Bible and see the big picture, isn't it? To see how, here's a group that's suffering. They don't know it in the midst of their suffering, but God is doing something bigger. Now, it's hard when you're in the midst of the suffering. But remember that God sees the big picture, amen? Hold on to that. Number two, take steps of faith. Take steps of faith. If God is calling you towards a step of faith, take it. Be willing to release 
by faith. Your babies into the hands of the Lord. Now, I'm not necessarily talking about real babies. There may be an area in your life that you hold as a baby. And you've got it tight like this and you're not going to let it go. And God's been saying, let it go. Release it. Release that. Let God do amazing things. Trust him. And then remember that God uses people mightily whom are broken. We need to be broken people. There is no place for prideful, self-confident, arrogant people in the kingdom of God. And if you are that way, you will not be used by God. To a mighty degree until you are broken. So be flexible, man. Let him break you. Humble yourself. The Bible says, humble yourself. C.S. Lewis used to say, humility isn't becoming more selfless. Humility is just thinking of yourself less. Don't be caught up in yourself. As a Christian man or woman, be caught up in serving God and serving other people. Take the back seat. And let God use you. And then I want to remind you that anything that this world can offer doesn't even compare to what God offers. Go with God. Go with him. Maybe there are some Christians here tonight and you've sort of forgot that. And you're going all over the place with all that the world can have to offer. And you know what? It doesn't satisfy you. You know it doesn't. Or maybe you're here tonight and you've never thought. Everything about your life has been immersed in this life. And everything that this world can have to offer. And you keep thinking, man, I try everything that this world has to offer and I never get satisfied. You won't get satisfied by anything in this world. You might find temporary happiness, but you're not permanent inner satisfaction. That only comes with God. Maybe tonight you need to say, you know what? I'm going to go with God. All out with God. Moses was a special baby, but we just got through finishing celebrating the birth of the most special baby, Jesus, right? Jesus was sent, the Son of God, to die on the cross for the sins of sinners, and he rose again that third day. And if you want to go with God, if you want to be right with God, you must receive him into your heart. And when you do, You will become a child of God. You'll become a member of his family. And you will find satisfaction. You're not going to find the easiest life, believe me. But you will find satisfaction and you will have a reward one day. It will be far greater than anything you can imagine here. Let's close it. Father, I pray that we would be obedient to your word. 
I pray that as your people, we would believe your word, embrace your word, and seek to live according to your word. Do your work in the hearts of your people right now. Brother, sister in Christ, if the Lord has spoken to you tonight, take heed. Embrace him. Ask him to help you obey what he just told you. Release what you need to release. Take the step that you need to take. Humble yourself before the living God. If you're here tonight and you've never come into the family of God, I want to invite you to pray this prayer with me. Come into his kingdom tonight. Invite Christ to be your savior tonight. Pray this prayer with me. Just in the quietness of your heart, say, Lord, I'm tired of running from you. I'm tired of being disappointed time and time and time again with the things of this world. Tired of seeking for happiness and satisfaction in the things of this world. I want you. I invite you right now to be my savior. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins, rising again. Come into my heart, flood my heart, fill my life. Fill me with your spirit. Set me firmly in the community of your people. Help me to follow you and serve you. Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.